Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. Join me as we explore another chapter in the story of our endlessly fascinating world. Tonight we're going to visit Ancient Egypt. For dozens and dozens of generations, for thousands of years, the gods of Egypt were worshipped all along the Nile River. The most spectacular temples and monuments ever seen, the most wondrous tombs were dedicated to them, their architecture, their walls impregnated with symbols, myths, and religious fervor. There were hundreds of these gods, most known only locally, but some so successful that they were famous and worshipped north to south. For millennia, some rose to prominence over the centuries, while many more were forgotten, or their cults merged with other deities. But after thousands of years of reigning alone over the hearts and souls of the Egyptian people, the gods of Egypt began to decline. As invaders took over the country, Persians from the east, Greeks from the north, and Romans from the West. All the various Egyptian deities were still not forgotten. Not yet. New cults emerged in Egypt, and the country's rulers were no longer of Egyptian bloodlines. This lasted for several more centuries. Year after year, the dream that Egypt would once again rise as a great power began to fade. Had the power of their gods disappeared? Or had the gods abandoned Egypt? No one knew. But one day a new cult appeared in foreign provinces, provinces that were once part of the Egyptian Empire. A new faith spread to every corner of the Roman Empire, of which Egypt was now a part. This new single god claimed that all the gods that had once been worshipped were fake idols and must be rejected, their myths forgotten, their temples destroyed or converted into temples for this new faith. These new believers called themselves Christians and overwhelmed Egypt. Each day their ranks grew and the Egyptians recanted the faith of their ancestors. Like dying stars from a distant galaxy, their temples closed one after another, until one day the last of them, to the south of Egypt on the island of Philae, winked out and vanished. The gods of Egypt had lost the last of their believers. The domination of Christians over Egypt didn't last long, though. Other invaders, the Arabs, and yet another monotheistic faith, took control of the land. The old gods of Egypt slumbered, apparently powerless or uninterested in our world. Generations passed, the temples became buried in sand, or were sometimes even dismantled and the memory of the ancient gods continued to fade away. There was no one left to read and say their names out loud from the walls of the temples, preventing them from being spoken into existence. Even the ability to read and understand the sacred writing was lost, and so were the myths and tales that once dominated Egypt. Centuries passed, until at last the monuments were studied and the language of hieroglyphics rediscovered, and, with this knowledge, the myths were once again deciphered in their original language. Tonight we're going to awaken the gods of Egypt once more, to invoke their memory and to relive some of the myths and stories that were shared for thousands of years 
across one of the oldest civilizations on Earth. As usual, we have a long journey ahead of us, so I've set up camp for us here along the banks of the Nile. After a hot day exploring the pyramids, it's nice to be here together. The night air cooled somewhat by the river, and only the soft sounds of the wind in the palms, the lapping of the water, the smell of lotus and hibiscus flowers filling our senses. As we recline beneath our mosquito netting, millions of stars twinkling overhead find a comfortable position in the shifting sand. Feel its cool against your back through your blanket while your head sinks into your pillow. Close your eyes if you like, because you can easily follow along just by listening and letting your mind wander with me to ancient Egypt. If at any point you fall asleep, you can easily return another time. Let's begin tonight with the myth of Osiris. In ancient times, long before our grandmothers' grandmothers were born, long before even the first pharaohs ruled over the Nile Valley, Osiris was the king of Egypt. He was married to his sister Isis, who was the sweetest, bravest, and most devoted wife. But Osiris had a rival, his brother Set. Osiris had been granted the valley and the delta of the Nile, green and fertile lands, where game was plentiful, crops grew quickly, and his subjects could live in peace and prosperity. Set, though, had been given the desert to the east and west of the Nile, a vast and desolate sandy expanse that burned hot in daylight and was freezing cold at night. Set's only subjects were wild beasts like scorpions and hyenas. As a result, Set resented his brother and was a mean-spirited, violent ruler who resolved that he would not rest until he had taken his brother's land. One day, Set did manage to capture and kill Osiris. But knowing that Isis was a powerful sorceress who could restore Osiris to life, Set dismembered his brother's body and scattered the pieces across Egypt. His rival out of the way, Set took the throne of Egypt and began his reign of terror. Isis went into hiding and, clinging to her last vestiges of hope, began a quest to find and reassemble her husband's body. Tirelessly she traveled the length and width of Egypt, north to the south, from the delta to the cataracts of the Nile, east to west, from the Red Sea to the Libyan desert, in her quest to find all the pieces of Osiris's corpse. Finally, Isis was able to gather them all together and began the work of restoring Osiris to wholeness. This kind of funerary process had never before been done, and Isis asked the deities sympathetic to her cause for help. Like her sister Nephtys, and the master of the underworld, Anubis, who had the head of a jackal. Together, the three embalmed Osiris and wrapped his body in immaculate white linen. Isis knew powerful magic, but she could not bring the dead back to life. She knew the soul of Osiris was now trapped, a prisoner between worlds, unable to start his journey to the underworld because he had not been properly buried. The restoration of his body's integrity had called his soul back from limbo. In order for Osiris's soul to travel, to make the full journey to the underworld, he had to be buried properly, with a full ceremony. And since Isis was alone, she could not organize such an event. Instead, she hid his body 
deciding to wait for a better opportunity. Before hiding it, though, she briefly called back her husband's spirit and restored him to life for one night only, during which the two conceived an heir, the god Horus. Now pregnant with Horus, Isis needed to hide from Set, the usurper, still the master of Egypt, and actively searching for Isis, having heard that she had retrieved the pieces of her husband's body. For years, Isis moved from hiding place to hiding place, to give birth, and then raise her son Horus. She became the best mother the world had ever seen, the epitome of maternal devotion, sometimes brave and fiercely protective, sometimes sweet and nurturing, able to console him and even heal him with her magic. Mother and son escaped hostile creatures and Set's search parties for years, and Horus grew stronger and braver each day that passed. Horus became an adolescent, then a young man, but certainly no ordinary young man. He was the son of two gods, and a god himself. His father had ruled on land, so Horus became a god of the sky. And like his representative animal, the falcon, Horus could soar above the earth, and nothing escaped his notice. His eyes became symbols of celestial bodies, his right eye a symbol for the sun, and his left for the moon, which at the time shone equally. Set, Isis, Horus, and all the other gods knew that one day the son of Osiris would fight his uncle for the right to be king of Egypt. Horus had been conceived and raised to avenge his father's death, and to end the unjust rule of Set. For years the two gods struggled, Horus versus Set, and yet neither could fully prevail. In one battle, Set severely wounded Horus, tearing out his left eye. Horus was able to escape, and the god Thoth healed him, but the eye could not be fully restored, and so it was that from this moment on the moon shone less brightly than the sun. Finally, after several more battles, Horus was able to vanquish Set. The gods assembled and acknowledged Horus as the winner and rightful successor to the throne of Egypt. Set was returned to the desolation of the desert. The goddess Mat, who represented the principles of truth, justice, and order, was restored, and Horus ascended to the throne. He was now able to perform the funerary rites for his father. His hidden body could finally be buried, still perfectly preserved by his embalming. Horus was now the king of the living, and his father the king of the dead. The realm of the dead, the Duat, was now his to rule. Osiris was a benevolent ruler, now responsible for the regeneration of life on earth. He helped to guide the souls of the deceased, reborn in the afterlife, and was responsible for the regeneration of crops. Horus remained on the throne for a long time, as long as several human lives and was succeeded by gods and spirits, until the emergence of the first pharaohs of Egypt's historical lineage of kings. This meant that each new pharaoh was a successor to Horus. This was probably the most influential and popular myth in all of Egyptian history, as well as one of the oldest. It took on its basic form before the 24th century BC, more than 4,000 years ago, and lasted for so long as a narrative that it took on new forms depending on the period and place. In some accounts, the fight between Horus and Set is not a physical one, but legal, litigated before a council of gods, 
the tale of Set dismembering Osiris's body and scattering it throughout Egypt is a later addition, one that only appeared during the New Kingdom. The New Kingdom was the last period during which Egypt was unified and strong, and also a time of great expansion beyond the valley of the Nile. Traditionally, the history of ancient Egypt is delineated into several periods. Periods of reunification and of decay, or foreign invasion. After an initial pre-dynastic period, the old kingdom rose, a time when the largest monuments, like the pyramids of Saqqara or Giza, were built. The old kingdom enjoyed centuries of stability, after which a transition period began, succeeded by the Middle Kingdom. There was then another intermediate period, before the start of the New Kingdom, which left as part of its legacy some of the most iconic Egyptian monuments and figures. The tomb of Tutankhamun, the pharaoh Ramses, Akhenaton, and Queen Hatshepsut, for example. At the time, the capital had moved south to Thebes, on the site of present-day Luxor. In this new kingdom, one cult experienced a spectacular rise in popularity and became the most important in Egypt, Amun. Amun was a local god who gained so much attention over time because successive pharaohs showered Amun's temples with favor and privileges so much so that the cult even absorbed other deities. The cult eventually came to claim that other gods were mere aspects of Ammon, that Ammon was, in fact, the driving force behind all other things. We'll look closer at some of these gods a little later in our story, but even the dozen or so we'll discuss still only represent the most famous the most successful figures that gained power and popularity across Egypt. There were still dozens more deities, some regional or associated with a specific concept or natural phenomenon. Because Egypt had a god for every occasion, and the myths associated with them were a way to appropriate and maybe even tame that which could not be controlled. The growth or failure of crops, flooding of the Nile, the threat of wild animals, the passing of time, or, the biggest mystery of all, what happens after death. Over several thousand years, the Egyptians created many myths to explain that which they did not understand, many of which were incompatible with one another, and featured a varying cast of gods, depending on the region and period. An example of this is the sheer variety of creation myths. Let's take a look at one of these now, the story of the origins of our world. This story comes from the city of Hermopolis, near the frontier between Upper and Lower Egypt, and goes like this. Before the world began, there was a primordial abyss, full of water, and extending in every direction indefinitely. It had no bottom, and no one to witness its existence, as no life had yet formed. The qualities of the primordial pool were represented by a set of eight gods, four females and four males forming four couples. Nu and his female counterpart, Nanette, were the water itself. Hehu and Hehut represented the water's infinite expanse. Keku and Kekut were the darkness within, and Amun and Amunet were its hidden and unknowable nature. Together they formed the Ogdod, or Eightfold, and the males were represented by frog heads, 
whereas females appeared with the heads of snakes. One day the two groups, male and female, converged, and their encounter resulted in a great upheaval, a pyramid-shaped mound rising from the water. From this mound emerged the sun, which rose into the sky, and for the first time this world of darkness was illuminated. All other gods and living beings also emerged from this primordial energy released during the encounter between the eight gods. I told you this is the oldest creation story that we know of. It is referenced in the pyramid texts, which are themselves the oldest ancient Egyptian funerary texts to our knowledge. They are dated from the older kingdom and were carved into the walls of pyramids and sarcophagi in the 24th century BC, some 45 centuries ago. But as I also mentioned, this is not the only one. In Heliopolis, near the Nile Delta, creation was attributed to Atum, spelled A-T-U-M, the deity who existed for eons in the waters of Nu, as an inert potential being. For the longest time, Atom existed as just a thought, really, a creation waiting to happen. Until one day he began to take form in the mound that had emerged from the primordial waters. Atom had a quality unique from other gods, and one that only Atom would ever possess. He was self-engendered, meaning he could change aspects and then separate them from himself, creating new elements. First he gave rise to Shu, the air god, and then Shu's sister, Tefnut. Tefnut was the goddess of the void. Shu and Tefnut coupled and produced two offspring, Geb, the earth god, and Nut, the sky goddess. These two siblings together defined the limits of the known world. These two siblings had four more children, each a life force. Osiris, the god of fertility and regeneration. Isis, the goddess of motherhood. Set, the god of chaos. And Nephthys, the female complement to Set. If you can't tell, this is a possible origin story for the Osiris myth that I told you earlier, with the rivalry of Osiris and Set. To recap, the primordial being Adam gave rise to two children, the air and the void, who had two more children, the earth and the sky, who then gave rise to four children, the components of life, for a total of nine gods. These nine gods were collectively called the Aeneid, and were widely worshipped in Heliopolis. In this theology, Adam was frequently represented as the sun, and the eight others were as much individual gods as they were various aspects of Adam. Not far from Heliopolis was Memphis, an important city in ancient Egyptian history that was also the capital during the Old Kingdom. In Memphis, the most important deity was Ptah, the patron god of craftsmen, representing the ability to envision a product, then shape raw materials to achieve it. The theology that arose in Memphis saw creation as more of an intellectual act than a physical phenomenon. This version also starts with the same watery abyss, Nu, in which existed the force represented by Ptah, a force that could envision and create new elements and beings. So Adam, the primordial being who we just discussed, does not self-engender in this version. Instead, existence is created in the thoughts of Ptah, and becomes real when Ptah speaks its name 
literally speaking all things into existence. So Ptah produced the gods and everything else and was the true creator of the world. I told you earlier that Thebes was the capital of the newly unified Egypt during the New Kingdom, and with the accompanying prominence, its local god Amun became the supreme god of the Egyptian pantheon. We heard about Amun already. He was one of the gods of the Ogdod, or Eightfold, the ones with fish and frog heads, and not to be confused with the nine gods, the Aeneid, from Heliopolis. In the Thebian tradition, Amun was considered the most important of his group of eight, with the other seven representing lesser aspects of him. According to this creation story, Amun was, in fact, separate from the world itself, and had initiated creation, unlike the other gods who were the products of creation. Amun's true nature was inaccessible, otherworldly, invisible to even the other gods. The priests of Amun created a sort of meta-theology around Amun that put him at the head of all other gods and placed the location of the primordial mound in Thebes. This creation story spread to all of Egypt during the New Kingdom, and Amun eventually merged with Ra, the sun god, which is why he is sometimes referred to as Amun-Ra. Are you confused yet? I know this is a lot of gods, a lot of names, that may be unfamiliar. So let's take some time to just focus on the most prominent gods in the Egyptian pantheon. We already discussed Osiris, the god of the underworld, who was generally represented as a mummified king, wrapped so that only his green hands and face were visible. As I said, Osiris was seen as benevolent, despite reigning over the realm of the dead. He embodied the life cycle, symbolized resurrection, and the cycle of Nile floods that Egypt relied on to irrigate and fertilize the land. Osiris was the first to be mummified, according to legend, and represents the transition from life into death, for which all Egyptians had to prepare. All human cultures had burial ceremonies and practices, so the Egyptians were obviously not the only ones trying to preserve bodies after death. They are, however, certainly the ones to have done so on such a large scale, and for such a long time. Only the elite were mummified in Egyptian culture, and buried with treasures, but even common people employed a quick mummification process. Their bodies were placed in natron, a mixture that the Egyptians gathered from the dry lake beds near the Nile and called nadir. Natron absorbs water, acting as a drying agent. Another advantage of natron is that, when exposed to moisture, its pH increases, becomes more acidic, and thus more hostile to bacteria. The Egyptians didn't know how it worked chemically, but did recognize that it was a very efficient and readily available chemical for preserving corpses. Scenes of Osiris's embalming generally also feature Isis, his wife, and Nephthys, her sister, who essentially acted as Isis's assistant during the mummification of Osiris, as she did in the Osiris myth. But no other significant traits were attributed to Nephthys. Isis, on the other hand, became the most important goddess in the Egyptian pantheon, and her cult expanded well beyond Egypt during the Greco-Roman period. Isis was seen as the embodiment of maternal care and the virtues of a traditional ancient Egyptian wife and mother. She was identified with Aphrodite, the great goddess of love and beauty, 
and her cult reached as far west as Great Britain, and as far east as Afghanistan. Before the expansion of Christianity throughout Europe, Isis was one of the last, if not the last, of the Egyptian deities to lose her following. The son of Isis and Osiris, Horus, was also a significant deity, depicted as a falcon or a man with the head of a falcon. Horus was the sky god, associated with war and hunting. As I mentioned earlier, his eyes were linked to the sun and moon. This gets complicated, too, because there were other sun gods as well. Re, also pronounced Ra, was another major one, depicted with the head of a hawk instead of a falcon. It was believed that Ra traveled across the sky in a boat, and, upon reaching the edge of the sky in the west at the end of each day, began a passage through the underworld. Each night he had to face a snake god, Nehebkau, and defeat him in order to be able to pass through the underworld and once again rise to cross the sky the next day. Depending on the period in time or the place, Ra and Horus were sometimes merged into one deity, and this was not a problem since in the Egyptian pantheon the gods were more associated with concepts than with physical objects. Ra was the sun at noon, but not the sun itself, for example. There was another god that represented the rising sun. The way Egyptians saw this pantheon, or at least Egyptian priests and theologians, was much less on the nose than depictions in Egyptian art and hieroglyphs suggest. We see humanoids with animal heads on the walls of monuments and tombs, but these should be viewed as symbols, representations to aid in the telling of stories and myths. Religion in Egypt was much more complex and likely spiritual than a bunch of colorful, half-human, half-animal gods assigned to an area of responsibility suggests. The concept that many gods were not individuals, but rather part of a whole, of the same primordial force, was widespread, as we have seen with the creation myths. In that sense, the deities were mediators, the means by which humans could think about and have reverence for powers greater than themselves that they might not be able to comprehend otherwise. So the figure of Ra, whose cult was centered in the city of Heliopolis, easily moved and merged with other gods like Horus or Ammon in the New Kingdom. Set was the closest thing to a villain in the Egyptian pantheon, but one whose existence was unavoidable, and therefore should also be worshipped and appeased. He was the god of violence, deserts, chaos, and storms, and was generally depicted as an animal or human, with a head that resembled that of a thin dog or a kind of fox. But many scholars believe that Set is not a specific animal, but a composite of different canines. Yet another god we already mentioned is Ptah, the protector of craftsmen and builders. Ptah was mainly worshipped in Memphis as the head of a trio of gods that included his wife, Sekhmet, the lion-headed goddess, and their son, Nephitim. Nephitim was a minor figure, but Sekhmet was a goddess of war, well known for being the destroyer of the enemies of the sun god Ra. Sekhmet's husband, Ptah, was a creative force, but she depicted a far more violent and destructive side, and was also associated with disease and medicine. Another goddess with a softer side than Sekhmet was Hathor, generally represented as a cow or as a woman with the head of a cow, or in her more human form, as a woman with cow's ears. 
Hathor embodied motherhood and fertility, protected women in childbirth, and was also evoked in funerary ceremonies as the entity who welcomed the dead on their travels to the underworld. I'll share a story later that depicts what these travels were thought to look like. Hathor was sometimes presented as the mother of the consort of the sky god Horus and the sun god Ra, and this made her the symbolic mother of their representatives on earth, the pharaohs. So, once again, you can see that the functions, the boundaries between deities, could be blurred. Hathor could sometimes replace Isis even. In fact, it is the opposite that happened. Hathor apparently came from other, similar cattle goddesses in the Old Kingdom that were portrayed very early on, in pre-dynastic times, as early as the 4th millennium BC. She then became one of the most important Egyptian goddesses in the Old Kingdom, thanks to the patronage of pharaohs. Hathor always remained important, but New Kingdom pharaohs gradually started to replace Hathor with Isis, their new favorite mother figure. And after the end of the New Kingdom, she was increasingly overshadowed by Isis. Another well-known figure was Anubis, the jackal god. Osiris rose to prominence as the god of the underworld during the Old Kingdom. But prior to that, Anubis was considered to be the primary god of the dead. Anubis didn't disappear, though. He was just assigned a lesser role, and retained a role in Egyptian mythology until the end, as the patron god of embalmers. You likely also know Thoth, the god of writing and wisdom, who could be depicted as a baboon, or as an ibis, or a man with the head of an ibis. Thoth was believed to possess extensive knowledge of magic and secrets. He is said to have invented language and the hieroglyphic script. As such, he was the scribe and advisor to the gods and the patron god of scribes. Another famous goddess was Bastet, the cat goddess, generally taking the appearance of a seated domestic cat or a woman with the head of a cat, and sometimes wearing rings in her nose or ears. But this is a later depiction of Bastet. Originally, she was represented as a lioness, like Sekhmet. The two goddesses, the domestic cat and the lioness, in time came to represent two sides of the same goddess, with Sekhmet representing the more powerful, more ferocious side, and Bastet the gentler, more domestic qualities. Later, she was also presented as a daughter of Ra and Isis, or the consort Peta, replacing Sekhmet. As the more aggressive aspects of her reputation began to soften, she became a protector of homes against disease or evil spirits, and maybe of pregnancy because of her association with cats, which were very popular in Egypt and protected homes from rodents. And finally a word about Amun, the most important god of the New Kingdom. As we discussed before, Amun is an ancient god, one of the original eight deities worshipped in Hermopolis. His cult spread south to Thebes, a secondary city at the time of the Old and Middle Kingdoms. Until the 16th century BC, Egypt had been occupied by a dynasty of foreign rulers from the east, known as the Hyksos. Nominally, at least, the Hyksos had replaced native Egyptian pharaohs during the transitional period, between the Middle and New Kingdoms, but they had more power in the north, in the Nile Delta. In the provinces south of the Delta, local rulers had more independence. This intermediate period didn't cause Egyptian culture to change 
or to pause in its development. Life just continued as usual, but with foreign kings and more political fragmentation. At the end of this period, the rulers of Thebes rebelled against the Hyksos, eventually conquering the Hyksos and reunifying Egypt, thus commencing a new period of resurgence and expansion, known as the New Kingdom. The capital was moved south to Thebes, and Amun was credited for having reunified Egypt. For the next 250 years, Egypt reached unprecedented levels of wealth and influence. This is the time during which the tombs in the Valley of the Kings and Valley of the Queens were dug, and when the Temple of Karnak in modern-day Luxor turned into an enormous complex. Alongside the pharaohs, the priests of Ammon were a force to be reckoned with. They owned land, collected taxes, and had outsized political power. The cult of Ammon continued to spread farther and farther beyond Thebes, to the point that Ammon overtook other deities like Ra, and the story that Ammon was the creator of the world and the supreme deity overshadowed other gods. Representations of Ammon are everywhere in the tombs and the temples of this period. There was no god or clergy prior to Ammon to have reached this level of power. This could be one of the reasons that the heretic pharaoh Akhenaton appeared during the New Kingdom, as part of a political struggle against the clergy of Ammon. Akhenaton attempted to build a new capital, Armana, to replace Thebes, but ultimately failed, and after his death, Thebes was immediately restored as the capital of Egypt. Akhenaton had also tried to replace the old gods, mainly Ammon, with the Aten, a sun god depicted as the disk of the sun in the sky, emitting rays of light that terminated in human hands. The Aten was not a god he had invented, it was the name given to the solar disk, and an aspect of Ra, the sun god. What Akhenaton did was to make the Aten the focus of all official worship during his reign. He claimed that all other gods were just aspects of the Aten. This religious revolution didn't work. People continued to follow the old ways, and the clergy of Amun was only disrupted for a few years. After Akhenaton died, Amun's position of importance in the Egyptian pantheon was restored. All traces of the heretic pharaoh were erased from official records, and his failed capital completely abandoned. But now, let's leave the New Kingdom, and make a big leap into the past to learn another old myth, the story of Ra, the sun god. In the mythic past, after creation, the sun god Ra dwelled on earth as the king of gods and of humans. This was a time of wealth, unity, and stability, a golden age that would never return. This wonderful era only persisted because Ra protected the world from chaos and enforced Mat, the concept of justice and balance that I mentioned previously. Ra once had to face several gods, who chose to defy his authority, and, with the help of Thoth, the god of wisdom, destroyed them. Another time, his own eye, the eye of Ra, turned against him. The eye could act independently from Ra, and take the form of a goddess, which in this case it did, becoming angry with Ra and running away from him and from Egypt. Ra was weakened by the absence of the eye goddess, and he sent Thoth to retrieve her. In Ra's weakened state, drought set in, crops no longer grew, and the sun's light was dimmed to the point that day resembled night. 
Thankfully, Thoth was able to convince the eye to return to Egypt. And the goddess eyes return, restored order, and renewed life. The waters of the Nile rose and inundated the land, making it once again fertile. Ever since then, the rising of the star Sirius in the night sky, a visual aspect of the Eye of Ra, signals the return of annual floods. But it was said that maintaining order in the world was a fight every moment. The gods had turned against Ra, and so had even his own eye. And now it seems, so was humanity, plotting rebellion against the sun god. Discovering the plot, Ra sent his eye to punish the men. The eye slayed so many that there was a risk humans would disappear altogether. Ra hadn't intended this. He didn't want to bring his creation to an end. But the eye, this part of him that hungered for violence, wouldn't stop. In an effort to stop the eye, Ra had beer dyed red to resemble blood, and then had it spread all over the land. The eye goddess, thinking it was blood, drank it, soon becoming drunk and ending her violent rampage. Humanity had been spared, but the incident made Ra wary of ruling on earth, and so he took to the heavens, beginning his daily journey across the sky and underworld. As he appeared and disappeared, the world now had days and nights. Seeing that Ra had abandoned the earth, the other deities followed suit, and the age of the gods came to an end, leaving the earth to humans. A new cycle began, the one in which we still live, and during this time the gods only intervened occasionally, their most important manifestation being the presence and reign of successive pharaohs. Surviving humans were dismayed by the departure of the gods, and they turned against one another and against those who had conspired against Ra. War appeared on earth, an absurd but tragically human struggle to restore justice. More and more humans made the journey to the underworld. Speaking of the underworld, before we finish... I'd like to share with you the story of what Egyptians believed happened after death. Over a long period of time, an elaborate myth developed, and this will be our final story of the night. The best-known Egyptian funerary text is called the Book of the Dead. Maybe you've heard of it. It was used for 15 centuries and had many different versions that were personalized. These books appeared in the New Kingdom, and their use lasted until the first century BC. The Book of the Dead was placed in the coffin or burial chamber of the deceased. It contained the magic spells that would guide the dead on their journey to the Duat, the underworld, where they would be subjected to judgment. But the first funerary texts appeared long before the Book of the Dead, and revealed how ancient Egyptians viewed the afterlife. The oldest are writings on the walls of pyramids and tombs in the Old Kingdom, and continued to be inscribed on walls through the time of the New Kingdom. These contained instructions for the rituals to be performed, the spells and powers that would help the dead transition into their new life, how to move, to eat, to get protection. The notion that the dead would be judged by the gods already existed at this time. If deemed worthy, or at least sufficiently helped by the instructions left for them, they would be allowed to mix with the gods, to live with them, Increasingly, these instructions were inscribed on coffins or sarcophagi during the Middle Kingdom. 
but the precise instructions we know of were fixed during the New Kingdom. Before the deceased faced their judgment in front of Osiris and other gods, they had to travel to the underworld and pass through a series of gates, caverns, and mountains guarded by supernatural creatures. These monsters could only be pacified by reciting the correct spells from the Book of the Dead. Once soothed, they would no longer be a threat and could even extend protection to the dead. After this phase, another breed of creatures awaited the deceased. These were killers who would slaughter the unrighteous before they could ever reach Osiris. Thankfully, the Book of the Dead once again contained the spells needed to slip past them. After passing these various tests, the time for judgment arrived. The deceased were judged by weighing their hearts, and so they were led by the god Anubis into the presence of Osiris, where they confessed, swearing they had committed no sins. After confessing, their hearts were weighed on a pair of scales against the goddess Mott, who you may remember embodied truth and justice. Mott appeared in the form of a feather, an ostrich feather. If the hearts of the deceased were heavier and out of balance with Mott, a fearsome creature named Amit stood by ready to eat the souls and condemn the dead to a second death, this one final, ending their hopes of an afterlife. There was no hell to fear in Egyptian mythology. The punishment for being unworthy of Mott was to disappear forever. This punishment could also be inflicted by the living, because some forms of death, like decapitation, for example, could bring about the second death as well and deny the deceased the opportunity to appear for judgment. But if the weighing of the heart was successful, Anubis would lead the person to Osiris, who would then allow them entrance to the afterlife. What a journey we've been on tonight. I don't think I could remember the name of one more Egyptian god if I tried. Still, what a fascinating exploration of the culture, history, and religion of an ancient people. I hope you are able to rest now, and that, as you close your eyes to sleep, your dreams are, like Mott, as light as a feather, and allow you admission to a world of slumber. Sleep well, dear friends.